the podcast that talks about franchises of all shapes, sizes, backgrounds, genres, and types. My name is Tom Stadler. I am one half of the hosting team on this fine podcast here with my wonderful co-host, as usual, Fred Dakin. Tom, it's great to be back. And I want to make uh, I want to make a promise today. Okay, I've been listening to episodes, and uh, I have to keep hearing about how nice your voice is and how lovely you sound. And I listen to myself, and I find myself very clawing. And <laughs> so from now on, this is my this is my podcast voice. Oh, okay. I'm going to try to keep it up for the rest of the podcast today, and for the rest of time in perpetuity. Are you really Fred or are you some kind of Cylon replacement? No, it is me. <laughs> but I understand what you're talking about oh. because of our topic today. Indeed. And our topic today, for those who are not familiar, is Battlestar Galactica. Uh, both the original series, we'll talk a little bit about that, and the the new series, the Revival, as they called it, that, in 2004. And here to talk to us about that is local comedian Jasmine Gonzalez. Hello, everyone. I'm back. Welcome, welcome. I, I will not be doing a podcast voice. This is just how I sound. <laughs> well, we all can't be natural. Some of us are going to have to work at a great voice <laughs> on Some this podcast. Some of us have to really try. Okay, Tom. <laughs> just shut up. <laughs> so say we all, Fred. So say we all. So... The topic today is Battlestar Galactica, um, a very beloved sci-fi series that sprung up at a very interesting time and one that we've had a little bit of opportunity to talk about outside of the podcast about how much TV is evolving in 2004. I mean, that really was kind of the kickoff of what a lot of people refer to as the golden era of TV. So I guess, Jasmine, what I'm curious about, though, is what is some of your experience with Battlestar Galactica and like how did you first find it? So I actually found Battlestar Galactica because I was a Doctor Who fan. Oh. Yeah, so I will give you the rundown there. It was probably like 2012, 2013, um kind of the summer between like junior sophomore junior year in college. Mm-hmm. Uh and I'd been watching Doctor Who, was a really big fan. At that point, I think I'd kind of caught up on all the seasons that were available. Um, and so I was I also was big on like Tumblr where I was like talking to other Doctor Who fans. And there was in the community kind of the sense of like, well, what do we watch while we're waiting for the next Doctor Who? And so there's kind of like a, a who's who of, you know, if you like this character, they're who's also who? <laughs> who's who of who's on who um, of, you know, actors who start in other things. Um and so from Doctor Who, I got into, weirdly enough, this show called Law and Order UK, um, which is a direct spinoff of Law and Order. Um, and that starred Jamie Bamber um, mm. alongside um, Free Agumen, who was the Doctor Who connection there. And so from there, it kind of goes like, oh, well, if I like this actor, what, what, what have they done? Um, and so from there, it's like, oh, well, Jamie Bamber is on this show. Um, that went off air a couple years ago called Battlestar Galactica. And so I looked that up, and Edward James Olmos was starring in Battlestar Galactica. And as a Mexican-American, that's, like, an actor that I'm like, whoa, like, he's on a TV (laughs) show? Like, he is, like, Selena's dad. He's in Stand and Deliver. Now he's in a sci-fi show. Like, I got to watch this. Uh, And so I think it was streaming in 
on Netflix at the time. And so I was able to pretty much just binge most of it. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much how I got into it was through those kind of connecting fandoms. Nice. So you kind of went through like almost like six degrees of Kevin Bacon with Jamie Bamber finding this thing. Was was Jimmy Smith's, was he NYPD Blue or, or Law and Order? He was, I believe, NYPD Blue. Okay. Go. I just, I want to watch Law and Order UK. It's, yeah. It was pretty so, good. Someone went around the pub, stole a packet of crisps. <laughs> oh, they got like the wigs because they're barristers. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's real good. It's real good. I was about to ask if Jimmy Smith was on that show, but the joke totally missed because he's not Law and Order. But oh. I, it probably would have been better with Jimmy Smith. Anyway. Jimmy Smith can do whatever he wants. I also respect that guy a lot. Okay. And you have watched the series now. Uh, twice way through is that right yeah twice. okay so what are the some of the reasons that you keep coming back to this show man it's you know it's interesting because as i mentioned the first time i watched it was around 2012 2013 which was a decade ago now which is wild to believe mm-hmm. and you know i was you know 19 20 years old at the time so you really get hooked into like if you're already into Doctor Who, you're already kind of into sci-fi and, you know, fantasy. You get really sucked into the like the world building, the the high stakes, um, you know, Battlestar Galactica has like all of that just really good, rich like storytelling. And I think that's what really drew me in and kept me in the first time. And so I was, you know, excited to go back into it now 10 years later. And as I was rewatching it, it just hit so differently seeing it you know as a an adult now who's grown up 10 more years has some more life Mm -hmm. experience under her belt um but also as someone who has lived through some pretty big world events um Battlestar Galactica was originally written you know just after 9-11 it was written or it aired in 2004 and so it has a lot of those post 9-11 themes um, which, I mean, we were kids during that time. So mm-hmm. it's like, I understand what they're kind of alluding to, but didn't necessarily understand it or understand the allegories at the time. Um, but now rewatching it after the 2016 election, the 2020 election, the COVID-19 pandemic, it's like, holy moly, like this show is just the really good type of science fiction that is able to talk about what's going on in the world at the time, but also is very like, you know, foretelling of things that can come. Um, I think, you know, things like Star Trek and all that have always had that tradition of just being really good at reflecting the world around them without necessarily like beating you over the head with it. Um, And so I think that's something that I really have come to enjoy about Battlestar Galactica is that it has really good characters, it has really good stories, um, really good action, and all of that good stuff. But it, it also is just this really grounded, human-driven story that we see of we see a lot of um, in modern media. But this is one of the shows that really, I think, still continues to be a standard even today. Yeah, there's definitely a piece of it that goes into the ideas that Star Trek presents of like, yeah, I'm going to play with like these bigger themes about war, about humanity and about like, you know, the responsibility of people and how, how human emotions can come into big events. But it took it in a more less serial format and is like, no, we're going to tell one long linear story, which is something now Star Trek, it feels like has borrowed from it where now they've done discovery and Picard, which are like more linear story shows with a beginning and end each season but Mm -hmm. yeah like now it really kind of feels like they are sort of like kind of picking and borrowing from one another 
And uh, yeah, it's a very interesting thing because for those who are not familiar, Battlestar Galactica is about a uh, war between these robots that were developed by the humans uh, and they all live on these colonies. The humans do. That is like, what is it, 12 different colonies and they are attacked by these Cylons who they had originally warred with. The Cylons left. So they're the robots that were created by the humans and Cylons come back basically destroy humanity you know it's this mass genocide and then the remainders of humanity are on the run basically trying to find a whole new home world for the, all the people that are left and so they play with a lot of themes of war and battle and all that it's a very can be very dire at times but also a, a rife like you said reflection of society and how it goes about its story Fred, what about you? What, what were some of your exposures to Battlestar? And I know it's a little bit less than Jasmine. My biggest memory when you say Battlestar Galactica, I think of I think of John Travolta with the dreadlocks. <laughs> and I think my my biggest question is, and I think this will be helpful for the people listening. Why don't, can you break down like what's what about Star Galactica? I know we were watching the trailer of the old school show. It was like a '60s television show, mm-hmm. and then I'm gonna try to see if I can piece it together. Was there a movie based on that show, and that's that John Travolta movie? <laughs> and then there's the miniseries which I watch, which is two episodes. That kind of is really just a table setter. And it's a good table setter too. I will say it's it's very watchable, but it's a lot of setting up pieces. It yeah. feels like and putting characters in certain positions, so you know, like it kind of is definitely setting a path for what follows is the series, which is four seasons. Yes. Okay. And now is that the timeline of all of Battlestar Galactica? Then? So I'll I'll turn that over to Jasmine. But first, so you're thinking of Battlefield Earth with Jonathan Travolta? That's not Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> I was like, huh, John Travolta with dreadlocks. That's a new one. I thought it was a very good joke, but (laughs) No, I I legit thought that it was all connected. No, that's that's different. Because Battlefield Earth is like where he kind of discovered Scientology, I think, too. There's is that like, right? Oh, there's like be, themes yeah. in Battlefield Earth that oh, are like whoever gosh. wrote that. Oh, because there's also like similar names with like showrunners and stuff. So there could be some crossover. Yeah, I think that's probably there's probably a very similar staff. But yeah, it's I don't think there's. Well, let's just <laughs> clarify that Battlestar Galactica is not affiliated with the Church of Scientology. <laughs> the Church of Latter-day Saints, though. Uh, yes. That it is. The Church yes. of Latter-day Saints, yes. Scientology, no. Um, well, affiliated, drawn um, inspiration from. Right. But the timeline, basically. So the original Battlestar Galactica um, was a story created by Glenn A. Larson, um, he was a prolific TV writer. I believe he wrote um, Night Rider, etc. Um, and he was a devout Mormon, and so he wanted to create a sort of sci-fi show that pulled themes from Mormon theology. Um, you know, and set it in space. And so he wrote the show. He ultimately came to call it just Galactica. Now, when he was writing it, Star Wars, the original Star Wars, um, had just been released as well. And so there's this really big craze about, like, let's get on this, you know, space opera trend. Um, So he was convinced to then change the name from Galactica to Battlestar Galactica in order to get that star association. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So he creates a show. He takes, again, themes from Mormon theology 
such as um, like the 12 colonies are based on, uh, oh, my Mormon theology is a little shaky here, um, but sort of like the 12 like colonies, I think, in Mormonism. Kobol, which is kind of this lost planet, is based on Kolob, which is, um, again, from Mormon theology. Um, and so, yeah, kind of created that um, idea and put it in space. Um, and so then from there, you get the original kind of setup of these um, robots that have been created by, you know, the humans, you know, kind of being bent on destroying all of mankind because they felt, you know, oppressed, whatnot. Um, and so that's kind of the story. Um, the original Battlestar Galactica didn't last very long, unfortunately, because it did um, kind of rip off of Star Wars a bit. You know, not the original story itself, but kind of the way that the network was shaping it was just too close to Star Wars. It was kind of put in, um, you know, not so great slots on TV. And so it just didn't quite work out. It had a cult following, but ultimately didn't last so long. There was a campaign, um, kind of a letter writing campaign to bring the show back. And so that's where you get Galactica 1980, which is once again a limited series that brought some of the care or some of the actors back, but not all. They kind of changed, um, you know, some of the storylines. They set it in a different era because they had a lower budget. I believe they set that on modern day Earth as opposed to being in space. Mm. Um, I think you get a couple of movies. There might even be one movie that is kind of a retelling of Battlestar Galactica 1978. Um, but ultimately, after 1980, it goes dark. Um, it just, you know, goes off TV. Um, there's kind of attempts to revive it from some of the original actors. Um, uh, Richard Hatch, who played Captain Apollo in the original, wrote up a spec and I believe even was able to kind of air a demo of it to some fans. So there was a lot of kind of a talk about bringing it back. But it wasn't until the 2000s when Ronald D. Moore, who was a Star Trek um, alum, had written for The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, writes along with David Icke. He creates this miniseries, put it out on the Sci-Fi Channel, which back in the day was spelled S-C-I-F-I, <laughs> as opposed to S-Y-F-Y, um, you know, landed really well. And so they picked it up, um, the network picked it up, and it became the four-season show that we have today. So that's kind of the timeline of Battlestar. There's also um, a prequel series that came out afterwards called Caprica that only um, went for about a season. There's some movies that tie into the show, um, kind of some other media and all that, but really after the um, mid-2000s is kind of the last we hear of Battlestar Galactica. Um, there's been rumblings of maybe bringing it back, of doing like another movie or another reboot, but as of now, Battlestar Galactica 2004 is really the main show that we have. Jasmine's looking at you, Peacock. Yeah, bring it back. <laughs> a Peacock original. You covered it pretty well. I was going to say, that's a pretty good way to summarize the the history. I mean, there's obviously a lot that we can dive into deeper, but, and I looked it up, Fred John Travolta was not in the 1980 version. I thought maybe you'd get one. Dick Van Dyke's son was in it, though. Oh. Yeah. Barry Van Dyke. Barry Van Dyke. It sounds just like a villain name. <laughs> Barry Van Dyke. <laughs> but so does Gaius Belter. Well, Ooh. who might not be as much of a villain in the new one? Um, in the original, he is for sure. But I don't know. I mean, we'll get into that a little bit. So that was kind of like the big rundown. So you you really didn't catch any of that stuff though along the way, Fred. Is kind of what you're saying, outside of like maybe Battlefield. 
That's so funny. Grow like except like you know I did research for this episode and I watched those two episodes before that. No, I had nothing except for like you know we were talking about like the Office references and the yeah. Portlandia sketch. Two things that like that gave most of my knowledge. But before that, no, I thought it was based off a movie with John Travolta <laughs> having dreadlocks. It's amazing. And it's funny, though, too, because I think that was my first exposure. Not Battlefield Earth. <laughs> I feel like that Should we do an episode on Battlefield Earth? Is it a franchise? Can <laughs> we it justify good? it? I don't think it's good. Who else is in it? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea who's in that movie. I only know John Travolta because that was just like such a weird time for him, too. <laughs> it's fresh off Tarantino. Um, but I had watched the Portlandia sketch. I'd watched a lot of Portlandia and still don't know why I did. But I remember that sketch specifically hitting me for some reason because they spent so much time during that episode specifically of just continuing to revisit the the storyline of like they want another episode of Battlestar Galactica. And I had no idea who Jamie Bamber was at the time. And I didn't recognize Ronald D. Moore in the sketch. But I knew who Edward James Olmos was because who doesn't know who Edward James Olmos was? It's James Callis that's in the Portlandia sketch. Jamie Bamber is Lee. Oh, I'm sorry, James Callis. You're right. Yes. I feel like it's because his character name is Gaius Baltar that I'm like, it has to be a B last night. (laughs) (laughs) So that I had, and then, yeah, The Office. There's also an episode of The Simpsons, which is funny considering how Battlestar Galactica, the new series, went. But basically there's this whole Treehouse of Horror episode where comic book guy kidnaps a bunch of like female like heroes from like comic conventions and stuff and is like holding them and Bart and Lisa are like superheroes and they foil a comic book guy by like throwing lucite on him whatever that is and it like freezes him in place and he's like I must get in a death pose of Adama from Battlestar Galactica <laughs> <laughs> and it's so it was a reference to the original series and that was like all I had ever known about that. But what's funny is the one character that he kidnaps is Xena Warrior Princess. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> Which is years before Lucy Lawless ended up on Battlestar Galactica. So That's and right. she was she actually voiced her character in that uh Simpsons sketch. So it was pretty good to kind of see everything come full circle like that. Yeah, Battlestar Galactica is interesting because I never feel like I run into anyone else who's watched the show. Like I always say like get this weird feeling that i'm like the only person who's ever watched this um i think like other things that i like that i bring up like game of thrones or you know star wars or anything else like i always will find kind of someone in the room who's like oh yeah i like that Battlestar galactica like it feels weirdly niche like it's this weird cult classic but it's not because Edward James Olmos was uh, in town a couple weeks ago. And, of course, there were sightings of him and they were posted on Facebook and almost everyone was referring to him as Admiral Adama. So I was like, so that is the role people know him for. Hmm. Where are all you people when I'm trying to find other Battlestar fans? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, yeah, because, I I mean, for me, Edward James Olmos was always uh, stand and deliver, even though I hadn't seen that movie until just a few years ago but yeah i think the people who do know him are always like yeah battlestar but like yeah it is a weirdly niche series i don't think i knew anybody besides you who had watched it had you fred and it was no. highly rated like it, the the cast did like a united nations like panel after the show oh, because wow. it was so highly like 
well received but yeah i'm always like am i the only person who ever watched this show i could tell you that edward james almost was on a sci-fi show and i could tell you that he looks like he's got the nice outfit mm-hmm. but i wouldn't be able to tell you it's Battlestar galactica like i feel like he's pretty synonymous with that role even if you don't know the show i picture him in <laughs> space in his outfit looking stern <laughs> <laughs> I feel though for me, he's always the guy, the scary guy from uh, Blade Runner with the oh, contacts, oh, and he's yeah. making the origami. Yeah. yeah, I actually I did a little deep dive on him because I just think he's a pretty interesting guy, and apparently even back then, he was very much like calling the shots about his role and his character. <laughs> like, oh, wow. uh, I watched two things. One was him talking about um, working on Blade Runner and that he made up his own language that he speaks in the movie. Mm. It was his idea to the contacts. And, like, that kind of becomes part of the movie. This, like, I think it's called, like, City Speak or something like that. Yeah. And then the other story I heard was he kept getting offered this role on Miami Vice by Michael Mann. And he kept turning it down because he wanted creative control and he wanted to be able to do other projects. Because he's like, Mike, he's like, Michael, man, what are you going to do when you leave this shoot? He's like, I'm going to go make Manhunter or whatever. He's like, I want to go make a movie. I don't want to be <laughs> stuck here on TV. They went back and forth, just raised the money, raised the money until they said, all right, you have creative control of the character and you can make movies when you want with notice. And it's just like, wow, dude's been a boss about his career since like the 70s, 80s. It's That's kind wonderful. of crazy. Good and he's, for him. He's got the skill. I mean, and so I think a lot of people, if they were first finding this series, will probably recognize him right away. And he's kind of a gateway in. But yeah, for the people that are niche fans of this, Jasmine, what do you feel like is one of the things that makes everybody so passionate about this one, especially? Speaking just for myself, at least, I think what I love about the show and what I think could really, you know, pull in anyone who, like, even if you're not so into, like, sci-fi as a whole, or even if you're just kind of like, oh, I'm going into this because I, I recognize, like, Edward James Olmos or this actor or that actor. Mm-hmm. It's such a well-acted show. The characters are written really well. Um, the stories they're given, you know, have some ups and downs. You might mm-hmm. wonder, like, oh, is that the way that this episode should have gone? But the characters are always really true to themselves. I think they're just the the writers really had a full understanding of who the characters were, how they would react in a situation. Um, And the actors then kind of meet the writers where they're at and they're they never phone in a performance. They're always just in it from the get go. And I think that's something that is really hard to capture in a lot of shows like sometimes you just like there might just be something that's just a little bit off and i feel like battlestar really just kind of like gets that character drivenness like right from the get-go mm-hmm. i think that's exactly why a lot of people come into sci-fi in general is they want to spend time with these characters like when we talked about the next generation that was something that i think we kept citing over and over again is the characters are incredibly likable they're very deep and i think that's something you do get on this show and the story i think is an interesting story that you really need to be able to watch the show and watch it kind of not intently, but you have to be able to know what's going on in order to really follow the the breadcrumbs. What I like to think about this show is it is very much kind of like lost in space. Lost in space? (laughs) 
Lost in Space. The old Lost in Space or the Gary Oldman movie Lost no, no, in no. Space? Or, no, wait, that's the Big Hurt. That's Big Hurt and Gary Oldman. Oh, yes. But no, what I'm saying is Lost dot 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 in space. Oh, JJ Abrams lost. JJ Abrams <laughs> lost in space. You see, this is this is the this is my thing <laughs> that I wanted because I was like, this is perfect because I think. This show, especially because it was developed at a very, I mean, almost like alongside Lost, right? But I think it, it was playing with storytelling the same way that Lost was. In that it's, and I think that's a good possible, like, you know, mirror image for this show for other people who have not watched it. It's got to understand it. It's a very character-driven show where you're trying to unravel, like, a mystery, even though there's they don't throw enough... All the mysteries that Lost does. Lost kind of even forgot about half the things they were trying to to solve along the way. Whereas I think Battlestar has a little more focus on like we're gonna just chase these four mystery boxes instead of these twenty. <laughs> well, even like I would say that certainly at season kind of one, what really is driving the story of Battlestar Galactica is just pure survival. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have so there's the the mini series which kicks everything off. Um, and that sets up the story where, you know, you have these human beings, they live on these 12 colonies in this, you know, star system. Everything is hunky-dory, great, you know, why would we suspect anything? Um, and we're coming off of this war that happened with the Cylons decades ago. It's pretty much been forgotten. Cylons have left um, under a truce. Uh, you know, the human military sends a representative to this kind of neutral territory meeting place um, to meet with the Cylon representatives and they never show up Mm. until one day they do. And they used to, or at least some of them still do, look like these big hulking metal, you know, robots, but all of a sudden they bring with them this blonde woman, just straight up human woman. And there's the confusion of like, who are you and what is going on? Mm-hmm. And before anything can be ascertained, there is a, you know, nuclear, um, you know, blast on all 12 colonies simultaneously. And all of a sudden, you know, billions of people have been annihilated by the Cylons. And so that's what sets everything up. And so those first, that first season really just is like, we don't have time to get answers. We don't care why this is happening. Mm-hmm. We just got to go. Um, and, the very first episode of the series proper, which is title 33 is some of the best writing I have ever, ever seen because it just captures that sheer like animal need to survive so well. So the premise of 33 is that, um, you know, you have these survivors who were on these, these ships out in space and that's why they were able to survive the blast, including the crew of the Galactica, which is this, older battle star um and so these ships they decide to rather than stay and fight they decide to run they're going to run through space they're going to try to outrun the cylons and so they're doing this they're jumping through you know faster than light travel and they realize that every 33 minutes the cylons find them Mm -hmm. and so they have these clocks set and they are just they can't go to sleep because somebody needs to be manning the ships um, you know, it's like literally every 33 minutes, like they have to keep jumping. And it is just the most sort of tense, like writing, because like you realize, like, there's no time for higher thought. There's no time for asking why or philosophizing or anything. It's just we just got to run. We just got to make it. And like that is just like 
just so, so like cool to me that they set that up. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually, they're able to break that 33 minute cycle. And then, you know, from there, you're still on the, well, how do we survive in space Um, when we used to live on these planets? How do we have enough food? All these really kind of basic, like, political questions. Um, And it's from there that you then move into kind of like the big questions. Um, And so what I like about that, all this to say, is I like how it really, like, understands, like, what humans would actually do like if if there were and again this is coming off 9-11 where we actually saw this happen Mm -hmm. like we're not going to stop and wonder like well why is this happening what are the mysteries let's think about the enemy and how they're thinking it's like no i gotta go i need food i need sleep i need to make sure i don't die Mm -hmm. um and i thought that was just like incredible that like we really set that up and it's only much later that it's like okay now let's unravel the mysteries now let's make this a show about like the big like unknowables because we've already established that like our human needs have been met to the extent that they can be yeah and i think that's a good way to put it too because the show definitely is not afraid to borrow from a lot of different ideas and there's a lot of different things that people will recognize in it too it's like you know there's a little bit of terminator you have humans versus robots right you have this idea of they're being chased through space it's like mad max fury road you also have like identity crisis is almost like the thing where Mm -hmm. you're like trying to figure it out so if anything yeah the show is not afraid to put a lot of different genres together and kind of blend into one thing but yet still have episodes that are so focused like that that draw you in and begin to make you care about these characters and are like okay this is how this person reacts that person and yeah having gone through an event like 9-11 when it's like kind of hits you deep you know (laughs) and when you remember that type of thing and that fear you felt it's like oh wow yeah you would be kind of fight or flight at this point, right? It's definitely something that I think is a, is a good draw for people. I would totally agree. But I think you can't look at the show without looking at some of these performances. And we already talked about a little bit about Edward James almost, but uh, you know, some of the other people we mentioned was Jamie Bamber. Um, we have James Callis. We have... And Katie Sagoff. Yeah. <laughs> She's like the Mount Rushmore of sci-fi TV, I feel, right? Yeah. It's just her face four times. <laughs> <laughs> it should be at this point. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at a lot of the people and like some of the, the cameos are even great, too. You had Dean Stockton or Stockwell. I'm sorry. Dean Stockwell from Quantum Leap. You have Lucy Lawless from Xena Warrior Princess. You have you have Katie Sackhoff, who now we all know through the Halloween movie. Resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't in that, was it? That was her first movie. Nuh-uh. <laughs> and a very like... Not Katie Sackhoff role too, because very much like uh, like drunk girl who gets killed. I'm pretty sure. Oh man, <laughs> like drunk party girl, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Yeah, because I feel any other Katie Sackhoff role would might kill Michael Myers. <laughs> <laughs> like like Bo Katan could probably take Michael Myers. Right. I mean, yeah. I was, I was gonna say the Mandalorian now, where we are about to get. I mean, at the time of this recording, a very like. Pretty Katie Sackhoff heavy entry coming up here this next season alongside Pedro Pascal, who's now become a sci-fi king (laughs) Mm because he's also going to have The Last of Us. But she's also in like... 
Firefly or something? She's in another big show like this, though, isn't she, Kay Sackhoff? Um, Might not necessarily be sci-fi, but, like, kind of of this time in genre style, I feel. Yeah, I will have to check that on that. While you're looking that up, I do want to mention, because we're talking about, you know, Katie Sackhoff could, like, take anyone in, in a fight at this point. When she auditioned for Battlestar Galactica, they actually did not like her for the role because she was too girly. She was very, like, classic Hollywood feminine. Like, I think she had her hair, like, dyed pink for, like, a previous role. And she shows up, you know, in auditions. And they're like, well, we really want, like, a more rugged, like, yeah, like a Xena warrior princess type. Like a Lucy Lawless type. And she really had to fight for that role to be like, no, I can do it. Like, I, like, I can act. I'll get, you know, ripped. Like, I can make that happen. And, like... Now, like, that's how we know her. We're like, oh, man, Katie Sackhoff is such a badass. But, like, back then it was, like, she was just, like, girly girl who's like, hey, like, I'm here to mm-hmm. audition to um, take this role that actually in the original Battlestar Galactica was played by a man. A lot of these roles were male roles. Right. And so for the revival, they decided to turn Starbuck as well as Boomer into um, female roles. And so there was already a lot of fan backlash about like, well, Starbuck is like this cigar smoking, <laughs> like womanizing man, rough and tumble, Apollo's best friend. Like, no way a girl could play that. And then we get Katie Sackoff. Like, mm-hmm. Thank God. <laughs> she has, like, uh, from just the miniseries I watch, she has very, like, Aliens 2 Marine Grunt energy. Like, when she's, mm. like, sitting and they're all, like, kind of, like, like roughhousing with each other. Like, I yeah. thought it was pretty great. Yeah, she's, like, uh, who's the, yeah, the one that they're always, like, making jokes about her being more like a man in Alien. And that's mm-hmm. not Sigourney Weaver. It's the other female actor. Uh, yeah, the one, I can't think of her name, but she's also in Terminator 2. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, which is, it's, again, there's a lot of Terminator parallels here, mm-hmm. especially considering it's robots wearing skin. Like, that's <laughs> very on the nose. I couldn't really find anything else that she was, like, in necessarily. I could have been mistaken. Maybe I was just thinking of Battlestar Galactica. I mean, <laughs> it's really her big thing. I, I really thought she was on Firefly or something, She too. popped up in, like, the Arrowverse a little bit. She was on The Flash. I do remember that was, like, one of my first times I saw Katie Sackhoff when I was watching the first couple of seasons of The Flash, and I was like, oh. I was like, she looks familiar. And then I'm like, nope, I don't know her from that. <laughs> now I do. <laughs> it was probably Alien. I was gonna make a Halloween Resurrection show, <laughs> but I, like, combined them. Alien, Halloween. 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 That sounds a, like a good that, movie. That's the crossover we need. The, the Xenomorph versus Mike Myers. I can't oh, yeah, do it. But yeah, I think we do have to throw, you know, a little bit of time here to to talk about Katie Sackhoff just stepping into a traditional male role and basically making it her own. And now people are like, Who, this was a guy back in the day? Like, that's almost the response you get at this point. It's like, no, because and I don't really know the original series, but I know that it sounded like it was very much just sort of, as you mentioned, like a ripoff of Star Wars, but like made for TV. It's almost like watching the Star Wars holiday special, but with a totally different story. <laughs> yeah. So. And no music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and no Earth. What is it? Life Day? Life yeah. Day. The Wookiees. Man. What was George Lucas thinking? It's great. Everyone watched the holiday special. The Star Wars holiday special is the best thing ever created. <laughs> Go watch it. Jefferson Airplane, right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wasn't it like yeah, the grandpa or like the little Chewy or whatever? Not Chewy. What's his, the little number's name? <laughs> <laughs> 
It's like Squinky or something. It's like B. Arthur in the special too. Babu Frick. It's Babu Frick. <laughs> it's totally Babu Frick. <laughs> I think the little kid's name is Stinky. I just I know this has nothing to do with Katie Sackoff, other than the fact that she's in the Star Wars universe now and there we go, bringing it all back. That's her most prominent role now is probably as Bo-Katan in that last season of Mandalorian that we just watched. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. She is definitely, though, somebody I'm surprised didn't get to do more outside of this show. And maybe that's something we'll have to talk about and could have, would have, should have. Because certainly, Edward James almost having the presence that he has was able to go and do whatever the hell before and after edward james almost did not need battlestar galactica like he was just fine without it the fact that like i mean because nowadays it's something we have to think about is like nowadays we are so used to seeing actors just do whatever they want like they can do film or they do tv like those lines would become so fluid whereas like back in the day like there was such a big distinction between film and television you were like either a film actor or you were a television actor and you would jump from tv to film but hardly ever the other way around and this Mm. is one of the first times that you see an actor of such caliber decide to commit to a multi-season cable television show which like is so like why like why would you do that and like now we're used to it like now you know all of these TV shows from streaming to television, like film actors decide, hey, it's just as prestigious, you know, even better than film a lot of times. I'm going to yeah. go do that. But like that was that was huge for him and for Mary McDonald to take on those roles that, you know, might have been considered beneath them. So, yeah, I mean, like they were they were doing just fine without Battlestar. They really elevated, I think, the entire medium of television by lending their star power um, and their acting chops to the show for sure. Um, but I think that show then kind of elevated all these other actors who got to, you know, ride that wave with them. Yeah, absolutely. And Mary McDonald is somebody that also did an incredible job in the show who plays very cool, calm, and collected for the most part, despite her going through tremendous amounts of stress. She's the president of the colonies in the show who is also battling cancer. And you just see that it's just somebody who has like the kind of just like like stamina to take everything that comes her way. And there's only really like one moment where I feel like she really lets her emotions like lose or get the best of her. And it's it's maybe her worst acting in the series, to be honest, during that moment. But um, it's it's an incredible powerhouse performance for her, for somebody who I think I only knew as like the president's wife from Independence Day prior to this. Yeah, I mean, something interesting about the characters in the show, too, is, you know, I think kind of going back to Star Wars, which I love. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Like, I will forever love, you know, the original trilogy and a lot of the television shows and all that. Babu Frick. Babu Frick is great. (laughs) Give me all the Babu Frick. Um, The only good thing to come out of the newest trilogy, honestly. (laughs) But, you know, the problem with... You know, things like Star Wars, I think that we kind of saw in the latest trilogy is the idea that like everyone is someone like, of course, everyone has to be, you know, a Skywalker or a Palpatine or a this or that or everyone's a Jedi. And, you know, like it's like everyone is the chosen one. So then no one is the chosen one. And in Battlestar Galactica, President Laura Roslin is at the time of the attacks. She is the 
Catholic Secretary of Education. She's 43rd in line for the presidency. So she is not the president when the attacks happen, and she's not anywhere near, you know, not the vice president, not anywhere near being up there. And so this is very much someone who has been thrust into power at the most traumatic time possible, like 43rd in line. That's something that we see in the miniseries is, you know, she kind of like types in her like emergency codes to see like, well, who else is out there? Like, I don't have to lead this. Right. And it's like, nah, it's you. <laughs> like, yeah. there's no one left. It's you, like, Madam Secretary. She's um, the Jon Snow. I don't want it. <laughs> you know, but like, it really is like this person who's like kind of thrust into it. King Ralph. <laughs> King Ralph. <laughs> is that is that his arc? In that movie I don't too? remember. I <laughs> <laughs> saw someone who wasn't expecting to be president. Good to see John Good. <laughs> I don't think I'm suited for this. <laughs> And yeah, it's like it's kind of the same with like like Edward James almost at the beginning of the show, like his character, like Commander Adama, is literally like it's his retirement day and mm-hmm. the, the Galactica as a ship is being retired. It's literally being retrofitted into a museum. So like the hopes and dreams of like the remnants of humanity are on a school teacher and like a retiree who is like driving like a Model T, basically. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that's like so cool because yeah, like in Star Wars, it's like well, everyone's special, therefore that's why we're following them. And here it's like these people were not like they wanted to just like retire and like go home and live their merry lives, and now they are like leading the charge. Like, what does that look like? And I think that really is like a great, more compelling story to follow. And the actors do a really good job of playing that kind of role. Yeah. It's an interesting series in that there's a lot of people who it's like, you are special if you find out you're a Cylon, but you don't want to find that out because then it's just like, instead of being like, yes, I'm one of them. You're like, fuck. Oh no, (laughs) I don't want to be special. It's like, no, can I not? It's just this, it's like, a, it's like getting a, a death sentence, finding out you're a Cylon. And there, there's so many reveals throughout the series and all the twists and turns. And it, it's just very much, without getting too much into it, we'll give some spoiler warnings when we get into that, but there's a lot of revelations about who could be wearing somebody's skin and who's not. But yeah, I think the one person that has to carry a lot of that throughout the series, because we know who she is from day one, is Trisha Helfer, who kind of like has to... like do this balance of sexy and like conniving and like mastermind sort of all at once. She plays like a lot of different things, almost kind of like a femme fatale that really is like more than meets the eye. Literally. (laughs) Yeah. She's an interesting character. Uh, Trisha Helfer also is in mass effect, mass effect three as a voice character, um, which is great. But um, yeah, she, she does, you know, come off with this like femme fatale. They have her in this like very kind of like stereotypical, like low cut revealing red dress and like the platinum blonde hair. And like, she's just like very sexy woman. Right. And so it's like, of course she like seduces the main, you know, guy, guys, Baltar to like, to start the attack on the colonies, you know? So it's very like, okay, okay. Femme fatale. Got it. Got it. Got it. But she does bring this like very sort of interesting like gravitas to the role because she's not just a pretty face and a pretty body it's like she is you know manipulating these like huge events but she's also doing it out of this sense of like love and feeling that she's being like divinely guided to do this Mm -hmm. um and and it's just such an interesting role that 
I, you know, she wasn't supposed to have as prominent of a role as she ended up having in the show. And, like, really, she ends up anchoring the whole thing. And she really does. Um, and, you know, she features very heavily in a lot of the promotional material. But really, like, she is kind of the through line from start to finish, which is, like, for sci-fi, it's really cool to see, like, all these, like, women really being the drivers behind the story. Yeah. Isn't there a lot of, like, those situations where you have somebody who wasn't planned to be in the show as prominently and then they end up in there? Oh, yeah. Um, the character of Hilo, Carl Agathon, was supposed to be a one-off. So in the miniseries... In the show itself. <laughs> yeah, in the miniseries, he um, is, you know, one of the soldiers when they're on Caprica, they're evacuating. He spots Gaius Baltar and says, hey, this is like one of the most celebrated scientists of our time. We need to get him out of here because we're going to need him in the time to come. And so he gives, us his, gives up his spot on his ship and he stays behind on Caprica with like a med kit and a sidearm. Yeah. That was supposed to be the end of him but he tested so well um with audiences and even with the writers that they're like we should just keep this guy um and he ends up staying throughout the entire show his character actually becomes a immensely critical part of the entire like mythology of the yeah. show and like, the kind of like overarching plot of the show and it's really cool because he wasn't supposed to be there and that like he's one of my favorite characters i think he's just like and he does such a good job just kind of like pushing things forward in a really good way he does yeah he's like the aaron paul of the show because <laughs> <laughs> i think aaron paul was supposed to be killed off early end on of season Bra one i think in breaking bad mm -hmm. and i think the same thing with like noho hank and barry like he was going to die very early on and they're like no this guy's way too eccentric we have to keep him urkel what? they weren't going to kill him but he was, <laughs> he was supposed to uh be just like a one-off thing and then he became the show and then he had his own show <laughs> that's right did Urkel did get a spinoff, didn't he? He was supposed to be, like, in an episode or two, and that was it. And then he became, like, the show. Yeah. Wild. Well, I can't remember if it's somebody showing me the opening credits to Family Matters versus, like, like season one versus season eight. And it's just, like, it goes from, like, the very family focus, kind of looks like the Cosby show, to, like, it's just Urkel, like, fucking up everyone's day. <laughs> Hilo is not very much like Urkel. But <laughs> <laughs> Did I do that? <laughs> Mr. Guy's Balter, you gotta get out. <laughs> Goodness. This movie, or this show would have been so much better with Urkel. I think the Battlestar Galactica, just the ship, would do well with Urkel running around. Oh, is that where James almost and Urkel together? <laughs> It'd be a little Rick and Morty, I feel like. <laughs> I'd watch that Rick and Morty. <laughs> Yeah, Urkel, Urkel, come here. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was, though. It's very interesting to see, yeah, that a character that was concepted into just kind of being a drop-in role becomes somebody who is such a large piece of it down the line. And, I mean, you know, you could go on and on about all the different great characters throughout it. But I guess what are some of the other things, though, that really make this series resonate, you know, throughout culture as much as it does for like the fandom itself i mean we talked a little bit about it like the office is somewhere that like a lot of people learned about battlestar through the office right it's like the bears beats battlestar mm -hmm. like, thing is there more in there besides that or is that that's the like thing literally it which is kind of unfortunate because <laughs> because it's the character of dwight who is saying that it kind of casts battlestar galactica as like oh if dwight likes it then like i don't like it 
You know what I mean? So it's like, I don't think The Office did any favors to Battlestar Galactica. Like, I highly doubt anyone's like, hmm, Dwight likes Battlestar Galactica. Let me go check that out. Absolutely not. I mean, I'd love to see the numbers. Maybe they did have a spike after that episode, but I doubt it. I mean, I was probably curious at the very least whenever I watched The Office for that, but... It's like the Weird Al thing. Anytime he covers a song, the songs, the sales go up. Yeah. I mean, I'd love it if there was like a, a Dwight bump. <laughs> Dwight bump. would <laughs> be great. It comes up more than just then, but that's the thing that, like, I've seen shirts that say that. Yeah. Does does Dwight say so say we all? I don't know that he did. I don't know. I think he doesn't he dress as something from Battlestar Galactica at one point. I think he does dress as a Cylon. Cylon, yeah. yeah. Like he's like in the Centurion outfit. Um I'll have to look that up. Maybe we'll put that in the promotional materials. But <laughs> <laughs> But it, it is a it is a fascinating show because it does have so much I mean I guess now of names that people recognize, right? Like, and, you know, besides some of the cameos, too, because Dean Stockwell is not in the beginning of this show at all. Neither is Lucy Lawless. And they become very much like characters they get latched onto. And they're like, we are going to thrust you into the spotlight at the end of this series. I just like realized, wait, didn't Lucy Lawless just kind of like disappear at the end? She made an exit. Uh, in the episode, uh, sometimes a great notion. So episode um, eleven of season four, mm-hmm. they are on the the nuclear wasteland that they have found, and she says, "I'm going to get off this merry-go-round and like be with the bones of my ancestors." Huh. Um, she says that's a Colonel Ty. So oh, wow. she can... does make an exit because she just kind of realizes like it's either I get chased down by Dean Stockwell's character or I just die here. Yeah. So yeah, she, but... she goes. Dean Stockwell, yeah, he he puts in a a great performance. Uh, it's something that's worth looking up for him outside of Quantum Leap, which he is he's also amazing in that. And, and uh oh my god, what's his name? <laughs> Who plays uh the doctor in that one? Scott Bakula. Thank you. That's it. Scott Is he a doctor? Scott Bakula? Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Acula? <laughs> Bakula. <laughs> I just did an office look to camera. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to... He is. He's a doctor in that, I think. Yeah, his character is named Dr. Samuel Beckett. What? Samuel Beckett? Isn't that like our author? Yeah, isn't that like Waiting for Godot? Oh, I thought it was... A playwright? Yeah. Maybe. What's Mark Twain's real name? Like isn't, Sam something. Isn't it funny? He's got a funny name. I think it's, yeah. Sam Whiskerhammer or something weird <laughs> no, like that. It's nothing like that. But I think it is Sam. It's Samuel Clemens. That's it. Oh, not that funny. Yeah. <laughs> a normal name. It's, it's decent. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, a, it's a name. Right? When are we going to do our names episode? <laughs> The franchise of the week is people named Sam. <laughs> Any Sam you want, throw them out there. That will be like episode 4,500. <laughs> Fresh, we've gone through everything. What do we do now? The names. names. <laughs> <laughs> we start going one name at a time. Right. Just the alphabet. I wouldn't want to share it with uh, with anybody else. So there's one actor, though, at least I want to bring up before we even move on. His name is Michael Hogan, who plays Colonel Ty in this. And I have to bring it up because 
this guy is very Canadian. And so he's already got a bit of an accent. You know, he's, a, he's kind of an old, like, you know, soldier. He's sort of, like, set in his ways, you know. But then there's a point in the series where he gets his eye. He, he loses his eye. So he gets an eye patch. And he just goes full on crusty sailor. (laughs) (laughs) Poop deck pappy. (laughs) It it, it leans into it so hard where he goes from just sort of like, I don't know about this one, Bill. Looks like we're not going to make it this time to like, all right, did see the heart of the sea that day. (laughs) And I'll tell you, I'll take down every Cylon with with my boat and my harpoon. I feel like that's what you do when you get an eye patch. You just lean into it. Oh, he's such a wonderful actor too, and I love his character. But definitely, once the eye patch comes in, like he he really just gets that like yar matey. He accent. leans in like way hard. You don't like my lobster. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong? You want you want more cheddar biscuits? <laughs> <laughs> he is also in Mass Effect. Oh. That's right. He is. There are several like Battlestar folks that did um, voice acting for Mass Effect. So, Mass Effect is also a, a who's who of sci-fi folk, but that's a franchise for a different yeah. day. Does, does Mass Effect? And you guys both played it, right? No. Oh, I you've sure not played. never played it. I'm a big Mass Effect fan. Does it share any thread lines with Battlestar at all? So, oh, that's interesting. I don't know if it's supposed to be intentional because. I'm shaky on my timeline of when Mass Effect came out, but they were pretty close together. There are some pretty common threads. I don't think it's necessarily supposed to mirror each other directly so much as like they're just kind of sci-fi tropes. Um, But there is very much the idea of, in both franchises, sort of the idea of does humanity or does civilization ever get to a point where it doesn't deserve to survive? Mm -hmm. Um, that's kind of the big thematic question that is in Battlestar Galactica, and it is also the the thematic question, but also the literal plot driver in Mass Effect, um, where you have these like sentient kind of robot machines that all of a sudden appear, and they're like, "All right, your time is up. We're gonna call you." And it's the idea of like, "Well, wait a minute. Like, don't we deserve to live?" And the machines say, "Like, no. Like, we think you've just gotten too big for your britches. You're done." Um, and you do kind of get these questions of like, well, are they right? Are we right? Is there a way where we can like live together? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, if you're a big like Battlestar Galactica fan, you will probably love Mass Effect and vice versa. I know I certainly love both. Mm-hmm. Is that like a shooty game? You shooting, shooting? It is a shooty game, but it's got really good story. Nice. So it's it's totally and like the shooty is fun because there's like different <laughs> classes where like you can like pick people up with your mind powers and then shoot them. It's Ooh, great. It's I good like stuff. That. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of like Bioshock. Yeah, it's very kind of like Bioshock in that way. Bioshock is the game episode we should do. Yeah. Add that to the list. That's probably <laughs> on there already, but I'll make sure we get it on there. <laughs> you might visit Mass Effect too. I, if it's something that I can play like on the PlayStation store or something, I would I would, you know, get into it. Get a whirl. Yeah. So before we get into our coulda, woulda, shouldas, I want to ask a question as someone who watched the first two episodes of the miniseries. What would you say to someone who's looking to get into a sci-fi show? Why Battlestar Galactica over, let's say, Star Trek Next Generation? I feel that's the closest comparison. It's a little older, but that's yeah. what I, that, that kind of felt the same vibes to me when I was watching it. For sure. 
Um, I I do love, you know, Star Trek, The Next Generation and all of that. Um, I think kind of the difference between shows like that versus a Battlestar Galactica is, um, you know, with like a, a Star Trek TNG or really most Star Treks um, up until the kind of modern era, it's very sort of like monster or alien of the week. Um, and there are some like truly beautiful stories in Next Generation that like still make me tear up when I watch them. Um, but it is kind of like a, you kind of jump in whenever you drop off whenever, um, which is great. I do love that kind of show. And the difference with Battlestar Galactica is you do have to watch it with kind of more intention, um, because there is just so much story and character development and just like world building that's happening. Um, it's for the most part, every episode builds onto the story. There are a few standalones that, you know, you watch, you kind of kind of get a feel for you know a character or a certain aspect um but most of it really does build you know keep building on itself towards this final goal um and again it's difficult because nowadays you know well over a decade after the show went off air it's left such a mark on television that you'd think well a lot of shows do that now like a lot of shows are that kind of like you know, one or two season, we have a story to tell, we tell it, we're done. But Battlestar was really one of the first that did that. And it's really cool to kind of go back and see something that feels so normal to us now as a like storytelling medium that was so groundbreaking back in the day. Um, so I think it's just kind of, if you're a big fan of like kind of prestige television or anything like that, it's really cool to just go back and see where it originated from and just see like how it holds up. And I think it holds up spectacularly. Um, you know, it's, it's just got that really good storytelling. It's, it's more character driven. Um, and it's got honestly one of the more kind of diverse casts that I've seen on a TV show, which speaks more to the problem in Hollywood of how maybe not diverse, um, casting can be even now. Um, but for, you know, a 2004 show, like, Again, several of the roles were switched from men to women um, and not for you not not to make like the case of like, oh, well, let's just like, you know, meet a quota and get some girls in there. Like, no, like they found they felt that, you know, for example, like a Starbuck, like it could be played by a woman and maybe it would be more interesting that way. And it was, you know, you have a Mexican-American actor in the lead who isn't necessarily playing a Mexican role, um, yeah. but he is just kind of playing a role that like an old white man could have played. Um, you know, you have Asian actors, you have like actors of, you know, various like ethnicities, races, nationalities, etc. Um, that is again, very interesting to see that early on and kind of disappointing that we're not beating that standard today, but cool that it was happening then. Yeah. Well, it certainly feels like people are more intentional now about adding diverse actors and, creators into the mix whereas it sort of felt like Battlestar at a time when nobody was really conscientious about that it was just sort of like we're just going to cast the best people for the role almost kind of like colorblind genderblind casting to make the story work outside of maybe like one or two particular roles based on the story that they had started to develop so it's but you, you touched on something very interesting too of the fact that it was that time like network cable didn't understand that 
you can cut something off early and be done. And it's like, you know, you don't have to make 20 episode seasons just to meet your, your budget or your meet your, your order. It's like, you can just be like, okay, what do you got for the season? Oh, 10 episodes. Great. We'll tell you what we can 10 and then we're on to the next one. So yeah, I think that's, that's a good, good case for it, especially as somebody who does like both of the shows you just tried to compare. Mm-hmm. So, on that note, we'll jump into our coulda, woulda, shoulda, because we got some stuff to unpack. And this is the part of the episode where we will say, I think we've been pretty good about being fairly spoiler-free so far. So if you care about spoilers for this show, this is your time to maybe fast-forward ahead. And, uh, yeah, just watch out. And we'll, we'll give you a warning when we're back out. But let's talk a little bit about some of the, the story and how they kind of bend it down because I think you can say this show has a controversial ending. <laughs> it's like the Sopranos. Yeah. You either loved this ending and we're like, yep, I totally get it. That's, that's the way it had to go. Or you're like, what was that ending? It is very much to this day. People are still very split on the Battlestar Galactica ending. It for Isn't Fred. it like a um, dark tower sort of situation where it's like, it, it's happened before. Yep, and that's a continuous phrase throughout it. Of it's happened before and it will happen again. All this has happened before and all this will happen again. Yeah, I was actually gonna we we're gonna punk Fred for a second and say, the pod bay door is open and then it cuts to black. <laughs> <laughs> While uh, don't stop believing is playing. <laughs> Funnily enough, there is a song that has some prominent meaning in this, but it's all along the Watchtower, not uh, which version. Jimi Hendrix. Oh, nice. Well, they do an orchestrated version, though, right? They they do in in the uh, in universe. It is an orchestral version, which we haven't mentioned yet. Holy moly, franchise player! The composer for Battlestar Galactica is Bear McCreary. Uh, his most recent work was Rings of Power on Amazon. Uh, he's He's done other big stuff. God of War. God of War. The the two new ones. Yeah. Super awesome music throughout the show. Uh, it, it makes the show. I mean, I think, like, that's, that's something I love about the show is, like, the acting is great. The writing is great. The music is great. Like, everything just, like, fits together so well. Um, but, yeah, he does a orchestral version, instrumental version of All Along the Watchtower, which is based on kind of the Jimi Hendrix version um, as we kind of see towards the end of the season. Yeah, and it's definitely, well, and it actually has meaning to the plot. The song is, which is still confusing to me <laughs> as to how the song existed before the potential Earth that had that song on it. But the, the, the song is coordinates for Earth because they're looking for Earth throughout the whole show and that's, that's how they find their way to a Earth-like planet. Right? Am I wrong about that? You're not wrong. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those interesting story choices where, so you have these these kind of critical characters coming into a very key piece of information about themselves and their role in sort of this story, um, and they are awoken into this knowledge by a certain piece of music. That music could have literally been just anything. Like, it could have been any motif, and they decided to make it all along the Watchtower. Um, my understanding is that showrunner um, Ronald Moore has specified that 
there's no real reason for it being that song. I mean, the lyrics kind of like fit, but I mean, did it have to be? I don't know. Yeah. I always thought that in uh, All Along the Watchtower, he says the hour is getting late. No, he doesn't? No, that's what he says. That's not what I thought he said. Oh. I thought he said, well, I was getting late. Oh. <laughs> Especially in the Hendrix version. That's yeah. Sure. <laughs> Listen to the Hendrix version. That's what I heard as a little kid. I was like, oh, he's getting late? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll say this for to, to even kick off our coulda, woulda, shoulda. I mean, so the story definitely ties itself in knots a little bit. And I think it was maybe a little ill-served by the era in that it had to have these 20-episode season structures where it feels like it's almost like they could have gotten to the point maybe about five episodes sooner in some spots. And you're just kind of left sort of like dangling like... You literally get a plot point that seems fairly critical, and then it's like, what, three episodes later it pays off of like, oh, so there's like five secret Cylons that you don't know who they are, but they're actually people in the fleet or whatever. And they're like, oh, someone's like, it's this person. And then that ends, and then there's three episodes, and then you don't actually see that character until three episodes later. And it's like... When he's like, oh, it's Ellen. Oh. And then it's like, there's a whole subplot about a mutiny for three episodes where that doesn't feel like they, they address that, really. And then they come back and it's like, oh, by the way, we're going to go spend time with Ellen now. After the, This revelation happened like two hours ago in TV time. <laughs> you know? I could believe it was Ellen. You know, I hear she's pretty mean to like the people who work around <laughs> <her> <laughs> Ellen is a robot in secret. I mean, we all know it deep down. But I do think if if there was the format today available for Battlestar Galactica where they could tell a 10 to 13 episode season, I think it may have served it better. But also, I mean, they they also ran into a writer's strike where they had to kind of rush their some of the story plots along. Are you saying like maybe like a Stranger's Things style where it's like this season we got seven episodes some of them are an hour long. Some are 45 minutes. It's what we needed to tell the story. Yeah. But I think that that type of thing could have worked where it's like, hey, we just want to like get from point A to point B where there's a lot of episodes where it's like they literally are fighting with like anti-vaxxers for a whole bucket episode or bottle <laughs> episode. And it's like, well, what does this do to serve the, the grander story other than offer not a lot of character development for some of the people in there? I don't know if you can agree or disagree with me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, as we kind of mentioned, it's it's a it was a cable TV show, um, very much at a time where this was just the way that television shows were made. You know, you were given a season, you wrote for that season, you filmed that season. You know, you got renewed. Cycle continues, um, and yes, you have the um, two thousand seven two thousand and eight writers strike that put a big hiatus on season four, which is the final season. Um, and depending on how you look at that writer's strike in particular is kind of a blessing or a curse, I think, um, because a good chunk of the show, you know, it's being written as they go. So they have the kind of big ideas of what they're going to do and kind of what they're going to go towards. But, 
most of the show, as you know, the writers have kind of said, it, it it was they were coming up with it as they went along. They didn't have like a finite like end goal. They didn't have like necessarily the answers to all the questions they were setting up. They really were discovering it along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you can kind of see that at times where you start to think, oh, man, like this is going to be a really big like setup to like this really big payoff. I can see like all of these like patterns coming together. And then it's not that thing. And you're like, oh, okay. Like, I I thought it was going to be this, but it it wasn't. And it's kind of because, like, the writers didn't quite get to that same conclusion when they were writing it. So there's that certainly happens throughout the show. Or, yeah, you get some episodes that kind of stand alone and are are still enjoyable to watch. But you kind of wonder, like, how does this move the plot forward? It kind of doesn't. Yeah. Um, With the writer's strike, what's interesting is that there were potentially other endings that would have capped off the show uh that if if it's that's to be believed i'm really glad that they got that writer's strike to kind of pause and think it through because even with the ending being as divisive as it was and we'll kind of get into that ending a little bit here so we don't leave folks hanging um there were endings that probably would have been worse um and so I'm kind of glad that they had that time to stop. And it does make me wonder if they were operating kind of on kind of that stranger things like, you know, we'll come back when we have a season ready for you um, mentality, if they might have gotten a tighter story. We don't know, because that's that's also very new territory that we're still figuring out how that works, too. Yeah. And I think there is something to that, though, too, because I think we should talk about the ending of so fred you were right when you said it is very much like it's a loop where you know they get to earth they get there before humanity has developed like they're back in like where it's just like tribes like stationed across the planet in like africa or wherever and so they they split up the remainder of the fleet to colonize the planet and they sort of like share their like findings but they ditch all their technology it's being like technology never did us any good so they they make a truce with the Cylons and like they try to live in peace with all the human Cylons and <laughs> it's sort of like so yeah they're just sort of like off trying to do this and then but inevitably humanity goes through its evolutions over 150,000 years and we get right back to the point where we're building robots again so <laughs> it's like and there's a lot of like religious motifs involved with that too where it's sort of like there's like like angels maybe that are sort of like involved with the story and creates a bit of confusion. That might be my next cut of what it should is. And maybe Jasmine, you can help us understand <laughs> that piece. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think with the first time I, I watched this show, I came away with a lot of those feelings of like, we didn't get any answers. What was this thing? You know, they kind of left us hanging, rewatching it a second time. Um, I mean, you got to remember that this show was based on Mormon theology, mm-hmm. which I think folks kind of forget or like I didn't even realize that until I did the second rewatch and was kind of studying up more on it, that it's based on Mormon theology. Um, even inside the show, religion plays a very big part. Um, the the colonials um, follow a kind of monotheistic culture, kind of similar to like the ancient Greeks or Romans in our world. And so, like, religion is a very big part of that. They're following kind of religious prophecies, etc. And um, 
when the version of Six, which is the Cylon um, played by Trisha Helfer, appears to Gaius Baltar, you know, he asks her multiple times, point blank, what are you? And she sometimes messes with him and kind of says, like, oh, I'm a chip in your head. I'm a hallucination. But more often than not, she does say, I'm an angel sent by God over and over and over. And when we get to the end of the show, like, they do establish, like, that they identify themselves as angels. Mm -hmm. And kind of going through, because, like, I kind of went through, like, on Reddit and other kind of, like, articles from kind of back then and now talking about the ending, you know, people are kind of recognizing that it's not that the show was necessarily unclear. It's that it maybe wasn't the answer people wanted because Mm. it does kind of, you know, I think folks go into science fiction and, and they want it to be a more kind of agnostic experience or they want the answer to be something like new to the lore, you know, like, Oh, it's like, it's this X, Y, Z. And so when we're using terminology that also has analogs in the real world, like angels sent by God, it gives some people kind of the willies. Cause it's like, Oh, is this like a religious thing now? Um, but in, in, in many ways it is like, and, and the show is very open about like, yes, like religion exists, higher powers exist. Like we've been trying to tell you that. And so whether that's a satisfying answer or not is still, I think up in the air. Um, but on the second rewatch, I was like, yeah, I, th- they've been saying it the whole time. And, and at the end, they don't stray away from it. That's what they were. It's very interesting. And this is why I call it lost dot, dot, dot in space, because it very much plays with that balance between man of faith, man of science, where it's like, well, what is the answer? Is it all science or is it all faith, spiritualism, magic, if you will? I don't know. You can call it faith. You can call it angels. You can call it whatever you like. It's Danny Glover, Angels in the Outfield. (laughs) It's a great poll. (laughs) I mean, how do you guys feel about that in general, especially with a show that is, I think, from the outside view, so sci-fi heavy? Is that something that you like seeing in sci-fi, or is that something that you're like, no... Keep that away from the stuff I like. Um, I like it always. Um, I like it where there is that kind of this is separate from religion. But also, I'm a fan of Prometheus. So, like, <laughs> I like it both ways, I'll say, you know? Sure. Whatever you're feeling. I mean, that's kind of the fight between Star Wars, too, right? Where it's like you have the, the scientific answer to the Force, which is like, oh, there's little microbiology that gives us our power, right? Like the midichlorians. And they're called which... the wills. <laughs> <laughs> it's in your blood. <laughs> it's in your blood. <laughs> that's so funny. But then you also have the people who are like, no, I like the Force as being something that's more mystical. So it's like, but I think that's the one property where it feels like people were like all the way in. I'm like, no, no, no. The force is like, it's a religion. It's magic, right? Or it's it's some kind of like spiritualism thing. And they hated the turn towards like, oh, there's a science-based reason for the force. And I think that's kind of something that is interesting with Battlestar. Because I think the idea of them being just angels is something I'm sort of like, okay, I guess. Because, I mean, there's another character that, which is Katie Sackhoff, who also presents as potentially an angel at some point. 
But her her departure is very unclear all around. There's Why does she fly away with angel wings? <laughs> <laughs> she just up and disappears. Like <laughs> it's a very strange arc for her that I wonder if maybe it got hurt a little bit by the the writer strike in a way. I don't know. There's there seem to have been maybe a lot of different possibilities for her character. I would have loved some more clarity at least. Ending a show is hard. It is. Mm-hmm. To tie up every loose end that you want to. Because I think that the tough thing about with that character is like the characters that are presenting as angels, like you don't, nobody else can see them but two people. That's how it is in Angels in the Outfield. <laughs> <laughs> but then her character comes back, potentially presents as like an angel, but then they're running blood tests on her to prove that she's her. Or I guess they run, or they run it on the, the amulet or whatever, right? Or her. No, they run it on. She's fully corporeal. Yeah. Like, people are hugging her. People are talking to her. She, I mean, she's back. Like, it's very much like she disappears. They think she's dead. And then she comes back. And they run all these tests on her. And they do everything that kind of poke and prod her. And she's there. And she's fine. And yet, at the end of the show, she kind of up and vanishes. And it makes you wonder, well, was she an angel? She might have been. But that is something that's kind of left unclear. So she's like Jesus in a way. She resurrects and then departs. Or to backdoor pilot for Touched by an Angel. Show my mom <laughs> watched a lot of. That's also God, possible. I do remember that show. <laughs> Should we do an episode on Touched by an Angel? I'd have never seen it. I would, I, I'll be on the other end of it. <laughs> here just being like, yes, okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I only watched the miniseries. <laughs> <laughs> I watched the first two episodes of Touched by an Angel. I didn't see any angel touching going on. <laughs> but it's um, it's a very odd thing. I guess I, I'd be curious to read the Mormon religion and understand Jesus' role in that. I don't think she's meant to be like a direct analog to like Jesus Christ. Well, I'm talking Mormon Jesus. Well, he's just Jesus. Oh, I guess. <laughs> There's, it's not like Korean Jesus. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, again, we also have to distinguish that the Mormon theology came from Glenn Larson creating the original Battlestar Galactica, Mm -hmm. um, whereas Ronald Moore, you know, then built his show off of the back of that. Again, it's, I grew up Catholic, I studied theology when I was in college for a bit, so it's, it's difficult when I think you're using, like, the word angel and the word God, like... Because the idea is that Battlestar Galactica is not in-universe with us, or at least certainly not at the same time, right? As, spoiler alert, as we find out, it's 150,000 years in the past of modern-day Earth. Mm-hmm. So, and, and like, monotheism doesn't exist for them. Like, they're not following, like, our religions that we have now, except for, again, a, a kind of polytheistic one. Um, but anyway... So they're using words that exist in our world. So we have understandings of like God and angels and like religion and all of that. But we have to understand that that when they're using it in their universe, it's not necessarily the same thing that we're talking about. Like it's not it's not like literal God and like literal angels and like all of this is just like one big Christian like show. Like it's just like it's the only words we have to describe it. And I think it's it's kind of just like a limitation of like human language that like we we don't have anything else to call them like we're we're just like these like dumb animals who like are 
our level of intelligence only goes so high, you yeah. know? And so, like, in universe, it's like there's just these forces that cannot be explained. The closest word we have to call them are angels, you know? And I get it. I, that rubs people the wrong way because they're like, oh, God, this is too Sunday schooly. But, like, I don't think it's meant to be, like, that direct it's not like a bonk you on the nose like this is a mormon show kind of a thing well no i think in a way it's kind of similar to uh the whole idea of like like thor like the mcu movie of like gods exist but they are aliens that came to our society and kind of like presented as these like higher forces that could do these amazing things and i think Battlestar Galactica does it in a different way. We just watched the trailer for like the original series, and like the very first line is like, you know, there's rumors that years ago humans came to Earth and you know touched like everything and you know impacted our society. It's like the whole people who think that like aliens built the pyramids, right? Like racist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But no one told me that I had to figure that out recently that all those ancient alien shows are just super racist because <laughs> it's just like, oh, well, no, it couldn't have been the people there that built that yeah. <laughs> brown people with engineering. No, obviously aliens. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think it's like it's playing off the, the the concept, though, that like we were inspired. Technology was inspired by an alien race coming down and, and impacting our society in some way. You see it in so many different things. So I think, and from that regard, I almost was like, well, I don't know that I, that ending bothers me. It's very odd how they got there, but it kind of makes sense. So I think, you know, that's definitely something I don't know that I would change. I kind of like the, the way that ending presented. But what are some things that you would change? And Fred, maybe if you even have any coulda, woulda, shouldas of like things that you would like to explore about the show. Um, no, I'll let uh, Jasmine do a little thinking here. I'll just say, uh, did they ever do anything with other sort of uh, types of medium? I'm sure there was probably novels where there video games and all that stuff. I could see some good strategy games or something or card games even. They you know, like Cylon Clue or something. <laughs> Oh, that would be great. Right? Like a, or like werewolves within, but Cylons within. Oh, my gosh. That actually would be really fun. That would be so fun. Like find the Cylon? There's yeah. no reason you couldn't do a, a version of that. So we mentioned they did movies based on it, and they also had prequel and a sequel show. Is that right? Uh, Caprica was a prequel show that came out after Battlestar Galactica. And what was... Blood and that Blood and Chrome was a series of webisodes, I believe, that follows young William Adama. Okay. Oh wow, that's like his Pennyworth. Yeah. Yeah. The, the origin or- of Batman's Butler. <laughs> the origin of Battlestar Galactica's <laughs> Captain. <laughs> so they did a, a lot of books, some of which were written by Greg Larson. Um, Glenn Larson. Glenn. Why do I? Am I messing up everyone's names? <laughs> Comic books, they did video games, some very old ones from 1978. Oh, wow. Those, like, Tiger Electronic-type games. But it does look like they did have some tabletop games, so you guys can look some of that up. Yeah, I could see the kind of tabletop strategy games being tied with a show like this. They also did, once upon a time, a studio tour back in 1979 at Universal Studios Mm. that eventually became... uh, 
Back to the Future, the ride. I'll let you know if there's any like remnants of <laughs> <laughs> just a cardboard cutout of EGO somewhere. <laughs> Fred's just like, all of this has happened before. <laughs> so, Jasmine, what about you for any coulda, woulda, shouldas? Yeah, it's it's tough because, you know, we, I just finished a, a second rewatch of the show. And like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's 10, it's been ten, over 10 years since I first watched the show. So really came at it looking, looking at it from a different perspective and through different eyes. And I don't know that there's a whole lot I would change. I mean, there are certainly, there are certainly some episodes that maybe don't need to be there. Um, the most infamous one that I think the Battlestar Galactica fandom is pretty unanimous in agreement on is the episode black market. Uh, that is the episode where Captain Lee Adama is investigating a black market that has appeared on one of the colonial ships. It sounds really interesting. It's not great. Uh, and it does not move the plot forward. And it introduces some like character inconsistencies and, and plot elements that are never brought up again. And it's just one of those instances where you can kind of tell that they needed to fill in the space for, you know, a set number of episodes they've mm-hmm. been ordered to do. And, you know, I would maybe just like go back and like edit that out, <laughs> uh, take that out. Um, but it's it's so far and few between because there are other kind of standalone episodes that like, sure, you could cut them out, but why would you? You know, like, just because they don't move the plot forward doesn't make them valuable. Um, Black Market is not that kind of episode, mm-hmm. however. It really does, I don't feel, adds anything to the story. So, I mean, it would just maybe be kind of like editing that. There is an interesting kind of fan theory that came up that has been discredited by the writers. I kind of enjoy it. Um, and this also came up from some of the kind of writer inconsistencies that popped up. Um, and look, for the most part, Battlestar Galactica is a really well-written show where like most of the ends were tied up by the time it got to the end. There were a few kind of mistakes. And one of, that, one of them is that the Cylon models, because there's a limited number of models, they take on a limited number of forms, they were misnumbered. So we got to a point where we had seen models one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, is Trisha Helfer, one of the most um, important, prominent ones. And then eight, who is playing, you know, Sharon Valeri, Sharon Agathon, played by Grace Park. There's no number seven. Um, and we didn't realize this until kind of later in the seasons. Like, we've never mentioned a seven. We've never seen a seven. Like, where is number seven? Because we know there's number eight. Um And so that got kind of plugged in with um, a couple of lines of dialogue with the idea being that uh, Cylon model one became kind of jealous of the of the number sevens, believe them to be kind of more favored in the eyes of their creators and so kind of poison their line. A theory that came up kind of as a way to explain that plot hole as long uh, as well as, you know, the whole question of like, well, what is Starbuck if she's not human um, was the idea that, you know, there would be a a single copy of that missing Cylon model, a number seven, who potentially would have escaped, made their way to um, Caprica or one of these other planets, but I think Caprica is the one that, you know, he would have gone to, would have met 
Starbuck's mother, you know, fell in love, married, had the child. The child would have been Starbuck. And then the idea would be that Starbuck would be this human Cylon hybrid, um, which we see a hybrid in the show. But the idea might have been that, like, Starbuck would have been the first one. She was still very unstable, which would have kind of accounted for, um, you know, her drinking, her kind of being rowdy, kind of having those character traits. And her ability to then come back because Cylons have resurrection technology. So, you know, she might have come back if she were part Cylon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there there would have been that kind of explanation of like, oh, these missing characters and all these like ideas, like they're actually all tied together. Yeah. It's been discredited. The writers have outright said, nope, that's not the case. Like Cylon Model 7 is not Kara's dad, which is kind of a bummer because it's like, if we came up with a good enough theory, I would just I would just run with it. If the right if I were the writer and I, I heard that theory, I'd be like, you know what? Sure, it's canon now. Um, so that's just my kind of little like fangirl, like, man, I wish that that story would have at least like tied the things a little bit more together. Even if it maybe weren't more satisfying, but still would have been kind of cool. That's not what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> what did you hear? I heard that seven, eight, nine. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Room of comedians here. Yeah, right. So it happens every time you get us all together. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to, to further to go on talking about the lore of the Cylons to make that even make sense is the fact that there are like 13 Cylons that look like humans and one you never see. So that's the one that's seven. But it's this... It's a very interesting thing that comes across in the series. And I think that is one thing that I maybe would have been like, oh, it would have been great if they knew early on who they wanted to be, these Cylons, so that they could have maybe, like, planted a few more seeds. Like, you could tell there was, like, one or two of them that they were like, yep, we definitely want that one to end up being one of these guys at the end. But there, there's one that is just a very sort of, like, odd choice she's sort of like an aide that comes in for the president sort of late on and it almost feels like it's because there was contractual issues with the previous person who felt filled that role that they had to get rid of that actor <laughs> so they replaced him because it's kind of like they were setting him up to be that yeah guy. there's there's the idea of the kind of final five cylons who are like the creators of the entire like cylon line and um in sort of season two no season three um, you have Lucy Lawless's character um, going on this quest to try to figure out who these final five are because, like, the, their memories of them have been, like, locked away for the entire, like, Cylon race. And so she's on this quest to find out who they are and see their faces. And she finally gets there and she sees their faces. And in a, a great Lucy Lawless performance, she she looks at them. So when we're watching them as viewers, we just see, like, these really bright, like, hooded figures, like, shining in white. You can't see any identifying features. And she approaches one of them, kind of touches her face, and is like, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. And you're like, oh, man. Like, whose face did she see that she would have to apologize? Because she's like, oh, shoot, I didn't realize you were my creator. (laughs) And so you get this question of, like, who did she see? Who did she see? And you're, like, racking your brain of, like, was there a character she harmed? Like, did she say something to a character? And then the reveal is made and you're like, did she interact with these characters? <laughs> like, you're kind of like, Oh, okay. And and so it's kind of like, 
the way that that was explained was like, oh, well, she she recognized all of them and was kind of making like a blanket apology. But it's like, no, when you filmed that scene, like she was having a one on one with that person, but you didn't know who that person was. Yeah. And then when you filled in the characters, it's like, uh, I can't tell who that was supposed to be. And that's kind of a bummer of the writing it as you're going and not having yeah. that planned out ahead of time. It would be like filming Harry Potter and like needing to justify like why you uh, need Ginny to be an important character or no. <laughs> I'm making an actual commentary mm-hmm. about Harry Potter. I know. That's, I mean, or like, oh, Lavender Brown is a character we need to introduce in movie six now, or Cedric's a character mm-hmm. we need to introduce in movie four. You know, it's like, it's that type of stuff where it's like when you start making it before you know the end game, you sort of write yourself into holes. It's or like, oh, wall, you know, Lavender Brown, like best friend of everyone from book one. Mm-hmm. Don't you remember? Yes. Of course Ron would be into her. She's been here the whole time. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that and that that's kind of some of that stuff. I think they made it work, but it was definitely sort of like when you when you get the reveal, you're like, huh, okay. <laughs> some interesting choices. The, the overarching kind of story of Battlestar Galactica, and again, kind of like the... The fact that it's so like character driven, I think, makes it all worth the while because it's like at the end of the day, it's about the people more than the plot. But you still want that plot to be kind of airtight, you know? Yeah, like for you sure. still like because those actors are putting in such good performances. Like I think that Lucy Lawless line is like one of my favorite scenes of all time because she just delivers it so well. And you're like, oh my god! Like the the sheer like remorse and regret that is coming through when she realizes her mistake. Only for it to be like, oh, uh, we we didn't know. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Dang. As we're getting to the end of this podcast, let's get to our favorite segment, the power rankings. Now, for me, this was something that I'm still trying to figure out. I only watched the first two episodes, so I'm just going to say TBD. Maybe I'll update one day on episode and be like, hey, you know what? These are my three people. Because as of now, I'm just going to say Edward James almost, Katie Sackhoff, and the nice the nice robot lady. <laughs> Trisha Helfer. Yeah, but I don't want those to be my answer. I want to give it a few episodes and come back. So that's me. What about you, Jasmine? Why don't you tell us your power rankings? My power rankings. Top three performances. Well, I think you mentioned kind of the, the big greats. Um, Edward James almost, you know, Trisha Helfer, Katie Sackhoff. They, they really carry the show. Um, I think an underrated performer, an underrated character is the character of Anastasia Duala or D, played by Candace McClure. She is just this very kind of like steady soldier, loyal to Adama, great at her job, really has this um this hope in finding Earth. Actually at one point when Adama's kind of losing his own faith of finding the planet, she's the one who's like, hey, like we believe in you. You told us we were gonna do this. Now make it happen. Um, and so she's like this really great force, just this like really kind soul, um, that I think is just played very, very well. Um, she comes to a really tragic ending, which again, on my first watch, I was like, whoa, why would that happen? So like spoiler alert, when 
the colonials and the Cylons in an alliance think they're about to find, you know, their homeland. They're about to find Earth. They they find a a version of Earth that ends up being a nuclear wasteland. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the hopes and dreams that they've pinned on this are just they dissipate in that moment. And D, you know, she goes down to the planet's surface along with all these characters. Um, and is is just kind of like rifling through, and she finds like a set of jacks, like the kid's toy, in the beach, and you just kind of see how this breaks her because you just kind of realize like, oh my god, like a child died here, you know? I mean, everyone died on this planet, but like that's what really kind of like breaks her. And she's been this character that throughout the entire show is just like so hopeful on like we're gonna find Earth, we're gonna make it happen, I'm gonna do everything I can to make it happen, and and this just breaks her and. She goes on one kind of like final date with her, you know, former husband, Leah Dama, is like in these high spirits. Everyone's like, wow, like you look so happy, you look so great. She's like, yeah, I'm having such a good time. And then immediately shoots herself in the head. And you're like, oh my gosh, like why would you do that? Like why would they do this to this character? But you kind of realize like at some point, like this traumatic journey of like losing your home, being in a constant war thinking you've come to the end and then it's just nothing is going to break people. And mm-hmm. it, it, it breaks down this loyal soldier and this all around good person. And, you know, she's all suffered other losses throughout the show. And so this is kind of like the one that really just breaks her back at the end. Um, and so I think that's just like, it is a, she's a very just kind of constant character at times kind of pushed into the background when I think she could have been really elevated a little bit more. But I think that story choice is, again, kind of really drives home what is so great about Battlestar Galactica is the idea of like these characters don't all have plot armor. Like they're going through real like mental health issues and like, you know, you lose faith in this thing that you were dreaming about. Like some people are not going to handle that well. Um, So she drives that really that point really well. So Candace McClure as D is one of my top faves. Good pick. Good deep cut too. Yeah, yeah. I think she she's underrated. Um, I think another great performance is Tamo Pennicat as Hilo, Carl Agathon. Um, again, he was kind of the red shirt we talked about that <laughs> was supposed to die in the miniseries. It was like, okay, Baltar, take my seat, bye. Um, and then they brought him back, and I think for really good reason. He is to me, the sort of, like, moral center of the show. Like, I think a lot of people kind of want to think that, like, Leah Dama is, like, the moral heart of the show. And I love Lee. I think Jamie Bamber is great. But I found at times that, you know, like, the character of Leah Dama is very much this, like, daddy's boy who is trying to step out of daddy's shadow and figure out who he is. And so a lot of his story in the show is, like, him kind of trying out these different personalities and these different roles and like kind of trying to like become his own person. And Hilo already is that person, you Mm -hmm. know, like he is very set on who he is, um, but he's not stubborn. He's willing to learn. I mean, he falls in love with Sharon, who we find out is a Cylon. And he has to go through the process of realizing that Cylons look like humans, one, and he's fallen in love with one, two, and he has impregnated her, three. So now he's about to have a child with this person who he thought was, you know, his friend and someone he cared about is now is the enemy. It's a triple demic. It's it's a triple demic. <laughs> new on the menu. Um, the turducken? 
but yeah i mean i love the character of hilo because he is very true to himself but he is also the character who is willing to grow and to adapt to the new circumstances and also to kind of be the canary in the coal mine of being like hey do you guys really think we should be doing this um there is a, a an arc in about season three where there's the potential to you know infect the Cylon resurrection ships with a virus that would wipe them out all at once. Mm-hmm. So it would basically be committing genocide. I would be committing genocide and Hilo very much calls this out. You know, where everyone else is seeing it as this like tactical strategy. He's like, you guys, like that's what they did to us and now you want to do it back to them. How does that make us any better? Right. And of course he's got a stake in it because he has, you know, a Cylon wife and a half Cylon child, but he really is that voice of reason that is like we are human beings and we're supposed to be better and we're supposed to prove that we're better. And this is not that. Um, And I think that character just does it really, really well. And I I appreciate that he's not, he plays it in a way where it doesn't come off as preachy or annoying or like, Oh God, Hilo, get out of the way and let Adama go like stomp on some Cylons. Like it really makes you pause and be like, Oh shit. Like you're right. Like just because the Cylons are quote unquote evil doesn't mean we get to go like just commit genocide and again kind of in light of like 9-11 and all of that i think that's like those are the types of voices that like we need more of to be like whoa 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 we don't just like go and like bomb people or start wars because you know they came and did this like we need to consider like what's the best solution here that actually like is dignified and like preserves our humanity and so i'm like I don't know, as a poli-sci major, I'm like, we need more helos in the world. <laughs> um, and, man, rule of threes here. I've got to pick a third performance. You know, I will go for a bigger name, because I don't think we've we've praised him enough, is James Callis as Gaius Baltar. Um, in the 1978 series, Dr. Baltar is a straight up kind of like mustache twirling villain. Mm-hmm. He, he sells out humanity to the Cylons because he'll be protected. Um, and that's that. That's as much as I know. And in the 2004 series, he's a much more nuanced character. Like he he still betrays humanity by handing over like the coats to the defense mainframe to the Cylons, but he does it because he wants to get laid. You know, like he's not doing it. Like any red-blooded male. You know, he's not doing it because he's like this like mwahaha evil villain. It's like he he's being seduced by a very beautiful woman, you know, which is the the Caprica 6 and he's like, oh, I've got all this power, this status, this prestige. Like, yeah, I could give you the coats. Why not? And so he's, he's very nuanced in that way. He's very torn on a lot of things and it takes him a long time but he starts to kind of realize the error of his ways and i think by the time we get to the end of the show he is a fully redeemed character um and i think that that's he plays it so well i mean he just has such a range of emotions where at times you're like wow this guy is just like off his rocker like why would anyone listen to him and then you're like oh my god this guy is the most inspiring person on the (laughs) fleet like of course i would listen to him and he just plays all those ranges so well um 
And so I think that is is a really great performance as well. Yeah, he can be a good snake oil salesman, but also a good, very sympathetic character. He sounds like he's got kind of like the Jamie Lannister thing going, he where does. he like yeah. that's a great. He does like a horrible thing in the first because you know I only saw him be horny and screw everyone <laughs> over. I didn't get to see like how he could get redeemed, but yeah, it totally feels like a Jamie Lannister thing where it's like. Wow, look at this piece of shit. And you're like, don't talk about him like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he he is very much that character. And I think that's a, that's definitely almost feels like the seeds for what ended up becoming that Jamie Lannister because it was before that. He kind of originated it very around a time when I feel like anti heroes were very present in a lot of TV because we had Breaking Bad around that time Mm -hmm. too with Walter White. You know, it's a lot of those characters who are. Sort of at their core, sort of rotten, but you still can't help but feel a little sympathetic for them just because you recognize what their situation is. And, yeah. yeah, it's and you know, all these actors gotta be top notch if they're gonna share the same space with Edward James almost, it's gotta be pretty intimidating. Yeah, so let me tell you about Edward James almost and intimidation. <laughs> well, okay, so. Not intimidating, maybe not the word, but uh, listen, shout out to Marcus Theaters here in Milwaukee, um, our main kind of theater chain. But they were doing during September for um, September and October for like Hispanic Heritage Month. They were doing like a run of like really well-known like Latino movies. And one of them, of course, is the movie Selena starring Jennifer Lopez and Edward James Olmos. Now, this movie had been showing in plenty of theaters, you know, all month. But we found out, kind of just pure luck, that on the last day of their film festival, they would be screening Selena, and the guest star who would be there at no additional charge was a Mr. Edward James Olmos. And I was like, oh, my God, we have to go. (laughs) So we got our tickets, and we went And, you know, you're really thinking that an actor of this caliber is going to, like, show up in, like, you know, he's going to come in through the back door and there's going to be, like, security everywhere and, like, you're not going to be able to touch him. And Nope. Dude just walks in through the front door and he's like, hello, hola, how are we doing? You're like, oh, my God, like, that's Admiral Adama (laughs) just, like, right there. And, And we're in this, like, meet and greet line and and we're we're, like, looking at him and I'm like we've been watching this guy on TV and like the big screen. And like, this is like, like I, I made the joke of like Edward James almost is like every Mexican Americans, like spiritual uncle or spiritual grandpa. <laughs> like we just, we love him so much. He's just part of our family. And so we're in this meet and greet line and we finally get there. And you know, you, you spend this time thinking like what I have two seconds to talk to this this actor who like I've grown up with, I know him, everyone knows him. What am I going to say to him? Which like movie of his do I reference? I need him to know that I love all of his work, but I need him to know one thing. Of course, I approach him, I grab his hands, and I go, "You're Commander Adama," and he's like, "Yes, that's me. The Admiral's in the house," and I'm just like, "Ah!" <laughs> and and you know the theater staff is like, "All right, all right, get in. Like, give us your phone. Let's take a picture." And we like take a picture. And, and, you know, they're like, all right, move on, move on. But before we move on, I kind of go and grab his hands again. And I was like, thank you so much for everything you've done. Like, I'm such a big fan. And, like, our community loves you. And he's just like, thank you so much. Like, enjoy the movie. And so say we all. 
<laughs> I swear to God, my heart just leapt out of my chest. I was like, oh, he said the thing. Oh my God. And I just like, I nearly started crying. Like just, it's, it's wild because he just has like the presence that you see on like the Adama character that's like coming through the screen where you're like, Oh, he's this like big, like tough military man who has to like be strong and lead everyone. Like that's just Edward James almost like he just like radiates that like immense regal presence. And it's like, Holy moly. Like this is so cool. (laughs) So that was great. And like, man, like it's, he's such a great performer, but he's also just seems like such a cool dude. Yeah. He was, he was a, a pleasure to meet. Um, and I mean, we'll, you'll see the promotional photo for this episode. So if you have not seen it yet, go ahead and check out our Instagram where you'll see a picture of Jasmine and myself with uh, Edward James almost. It was, it was a wonderful day. I am sad to say though, that in that photo, you can't see a sweet, sweet ponytail because he was mm. rocking mm. one. He was, he had a very, very dope ponytail on his back. Yeah. Edward James almost, I mean, it's, you, you can't start talking about this, ep- you know, the show or finish talking about it without mentioning him at least, you know, a hundred times because he is such a heart of this entire show. I think as much as everybody does do is as great around him. And, you know, one person who I do feel like kind of steals the show a little bit when she comes on screen is definitely Lucy Lawless. I Mm. like you look at and you're like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh that's Xena. And she just starts going and you are like, Oh whoa, she's bringing the chops to this, and I mean she's off stage, and you know seasoned actors around her who clearly have been in the game for a long time. But is somebody else who I was always like, I wish she had done a lot more, but she got, you know, kind of like pigeonholed into this. I, you are a warrior princess, and that's who you are. So she's good on curb. She is good on curb. I did forget she's on curb for a bit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a great role too. So I'll definitely throw Lucy Lawless as kind of my first one because I don't know that we talked enough about her before. I mean, you can't talk enough about any of these characters. They're all yeah. so great. I also do want to mention Aaron Douglas. There's another one who plays a character we have not mentioned at all named, uh, well, they just call him Chief, but he's Galen Tyrell, right? Or Tyrell? Tyrell. But yeah, Chief is a character who, I mean, he basically is like the their like auto garage guy who fixes up all the, the planes and... I really like how nuanced his role is because he's very much sort of like always there and he says a lot with his emotions and his body without really saying a word all the time. He's kind of soft spoken, but when he does talk, people listen and he is, he almost kind of has like almost like a mini EJO to him. And I really appreciated that. Um, you know, he is, it's interesting cause he's a character that does not get a happy ending. You know, most of the characters kind of do, they get, you know, bittersweet ending, certainly. There, there's certainly some loss and some grieving, but they, they get kind of an ending. They're like, okay, you know, pretty good. Uh, Chief does not. Chief gets rocked pretty hard by the events of the show, and it, it never stops. And by the time we get to the end, he is done, and that is the end of him. And it's heartbreaking to watch, but also kind of reminds you, like, hey, not everyone gets a happy ending. Yeah. Like, some people just get the rough end of it over and over and over and like they just become shells of themselves and and he plays it really well but it's it's a a rough ending for such a beloved character yeah for sure and i think he he played it well though the whole way um 
I'll second your pick, though, too, of James Callis. I, I really enjoyed the character of Gaius Balter. I felt like he, he is the exact kind of like, like I said, kind of like that snake. He's that Jamie Lannister that it's like, oh, he's such a snake, but you just can't help it. It's like every time he's on the screen, you're like, what's this guy going to do now? I got to find out. And it just, I think he did it well. And he was great in that Portlandia sketch when they brought him, <laughs> <laughs> him and Edward James almost. And, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ronald D. Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it's very fun that the actors, it seems like are having a lot of fun with the show well after it's been completed and mm-hmm. they're doing their con circulations, just like every member of Star Trek and Star Wars and Xena and everybody else who lives off these shows forever and ever, you know? So it's. It's truly a staple, and I think you know for the people who have not watched it, definitely would encourage you to go out and find it because I think it's it's on Peacock right now. Sure, it'll be on something else later, but yeah. Now, I'm pretty sure the showrunner now is doing that uh, for all mankind show. Right? I believe you're right. I think you're right, and he. I have heard a lot of great stuff. About yeah, that. if that's not my thing, but the setup for where it's like each season is a different decade of space. Oh, wow. Kind of like, so they do like, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, I believe. So, so you would say it's like the crown dot, dot, dot in space. (laughs) (laughs) In space. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, so I think that brings us to the end of our episode here today. Uh, Somehow our journey already has come to, Back to Earth, if you will. <laughs> it's happened before and it will happen again, you guys. <laughs> I feel like that's just the, the circle here. But before we leave, we'll see if we have anything that we want to plug. Fred, would you like to, to begin? I'm just going to plug the podcast. Listen to our podcast. Tell a friend. <laughs> Wonderful. Jasmine, anything you would like to plug? Um, yeah, so in my research for this episode, I was curious to see what kind of the actors from Battlestar Galactica have gotten up to um, in the years since. Um, Came across some kind of unfortunate news. Um, The actor who plays uh, Colonel Saltai, uh, Michael Hogan, who we mentioned earlier on this episode, suffered a pretty devastating fall in 2020 um, that left him partially paralyzed, um, pretty bad head injury. He is alive. He is recovering, but it sounds like he probably won't ever act again um, and is going to kind of be in recovery. I did find that there is an active GoFundMe um, that is raising funds for him. It's been going on for a few years. And it's pretty wild because you think like, Actors who make these shows are probably like multimillionaires, but uh, they don't get paid a whole lot of money. And I think any actor friends of ours can confirm that is once a gig is up, it's up. Um, So it's unfortunate to hear that. But if you are a Battlestar Galactica fan or if you just feel like helping out um, during this kind of holiday season, there is a GoFundMe for the actor Michael Hogan. You can just look up GoFundMe Michael Hogan Fund, and it should come up. You'll know it's his right away. They've got Battlestar Galactica imagery all over it. Um, It looks like they've raised a ton of money, but obviously his needs are going to be ongoing. So it's a bummer to hear that. We wish him all the best, and if you want to throw some bucks his way, please do so. Yeah, it's a great cause. I mean, we're all about supporting causes and supporting others so you know please consider that uh you know and as far as our show you know please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts uh you know we are 
going to be taking a short, it'll be a one week hiatus, really. Uh, Fred and I have been very busy recently. Busy um, boys. Busy boys. We we have uh, delayed honeymoons from weddings at the time of this recording. Uh, did you delay the honeymoon for this podcast? Yes, I did. Okay, okay. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> so I wanted to know what your priorities are. I'm the pod above all. Okay. <laughs> Thank goodness. It's priority number one in our lives. But um, at least in this case, you know, we do. We have honeymoons, uh, engagements, uh, as I am sitting with my, at this time of recording now, fiance. It's Fred. I thought we weren't going to tell people that. Aw, Fred and Tom. <laughs> Congratulations. It was time. We, we were so excited. And we already got married and are going on our honeymoon. I mean, it's a very exciting time all around for us. Adorable. <laughs> so cute. Um, For anyone who doesn't know, it's Tom and me. <laughs> she uh, had to clarify. Someone out there will be like, oh, my God, the co-hosts got engaged. God, I wish. We'll be starting our State of the Franchise registry. Uh, <laughs> Buymeacoffee.com slash SOTF. Uh, if you want to throw us a couple bucks. Um, definitely goes a long way to helping fund this show, especially, uh, you know, we'll be looking to continue into next year. So our next episode will be a holiday episode. Uh, so it might be just like a week late. We'll be getting very close to the Christmas time, maybe middle of Hanukkah. So keep an eye out for that at that point. And uh, yeah, uh, we wish you all, you know, happiness and, uh, you know, enjoy the rest of, I, I'm like, do we wish happy holidays? Because it's like, this is an evergreen episode, so mm. <laughs> I guess it's like... It's fine. Time exists. People understand. What about Happy Life Day? Happy Life Day, one and all. And uh, if you see a person that looks like another person, they might be a Cylon. Question everything. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I'm going to leave it right there. I really don't have anything else to add on top of that. <laughs> Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. So say we all. Bye.